His one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Also grab your sermon notes out. This is our Certainty in a World of Doubt teaching series. We're working our way through the Gospel of Luke. Unshakable Identity is the title of this weekend's message. We'll begin our reading in chapter 2 of Luke, starting at verse 39. We'll read to the end of the chapter, and then we'll jump into chapter 3 a little bit. Chapter 3, verses 21 through 23. My wife and I went to a movie here a couple weeks back. It was called Collateral Beauty. And uh, Will Smith, a successful advertising executive, suffers a great tragedy. And uh, his six-year-old daughter dies of a brain tumor. And he's devastated. He's overwhelmed. And what's interesting about this movie is that he's so overwhelmed that it impacts every other part of his life. It, it infiltrates and, and has this rippling effect. It, it really destroys his life in general, but destroys his marriage, destroys his career, his friendships, every area of his life. Really, oftentimes when I watch a movie, I'll ask myself, well, what is, the, what is the writer trying to convey through this movie? And one of the big ideas that I got from it was that he was saying, diversify your life. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. What's fascinating about oftentimes with the Hollywood movies, they kind of fall short of, of God. You know what I'm saying? And this movie did that. Uh, no mention of God whatsoever. And so there was this, um, this idea of uh, really what is common in our culture today, existentialism. That's a belief system that many embrace. And basically, existentialism is this. Be courageous and moral in the face of suffering and death. Uh, value is created by one's choice. So even the deepest loss can reveal moments of meaning and beauty. In other words, so he let this one thing, which is certainly devastating, affect every other area of his life, which were certainly beautiful, but he missed that and, and it influenced everything in his life and it crashed his whole life. And quite a fascinating story. And, and so the idea here, collateral beauty, um, I mean, it's, it's a good idea. The problem that I have with that whole idea is that it does miss God. And in fact, take a look at your sermon notes. Everyone is building their identity on something. Every one of us is building our identity, our meaning and purpose on something. You know that. We talk about that a lot here. You need to know that. Whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, it doesn't matter. You're building your identity on something. Your meaning and purpose is on something. Anything more central to your identity than God is inherently unstable even if you diversify your life. Does that make sense? So even if you do diversify your life, you don't put all your eggs in one basket, but you put you know, some eggs in this, you know, your, your family basket and then your career basket and then your, your whatever. Though you do diversify your, your life, the problem with that is that you're still building your life on created things and not the creator. Does that make sense? And that's the problem I had with the movie and, uh, because they failed to, to take you all the way to God to say, hey, wait, 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 you need to build your life ultimately on God. Only an identity built on God and his love is unshakable. Let me say that again. Only an identity built on God and his love is unshakable. If you want an unshakable life, you build your identity, your sense of meaning and purpose on, on God and his love. Building our lives on anything other than God not only hurts us if, if we don't get the desires of our heart, but even if we do, because it will never, it'll never be enough. Because you and I were created by God for God. To, to live our lives for his glory, that's where we're gonna be most satisfied is by living for his glory. Now, let me bring you up to speed with the gospel of Luke as we've been working through it. Luke wrote this gospel to show us that the life of Jesus is, is not just, it's not just historical, it's not just uh, historical, factual, evidential, it's not just historical, but, but we can also have a relationship with God through Jesus as a daily reality. So it's not just a historical fact, but it can be a daily reality. The very living presence of Jesus through his Holy Spirit in our lives. So that's what he's wanting to convey to us. Now, there's two incidents that we're gonna be looking at early in the life of Jesus and they have this common thread 
that runs through them, that is the identity of Jesus. And so you can see on the notes here, three things we're going to look at are the unshakable identity of the 12-year-old Jesus, that's the first thing we'll look at, and then we'll look at the unshakable identity of the 30-year-old Jesus, and then we will look at the unshakable identity of the followers of Jesus. So that's where we're headed with our study this morning. Would you bow your heads with me? Once again, before we read our text and unpack these notes, God, we are delighted to be here this morning. We love your presence. We love spending time with you. We love worshiping you in, in song and worshiping you in the study of your word. And so now, Father, you are indeed the creator of our lives, the redeemer of our souls, the only one that can satisfy the deepest longing of our hearts We confess that we are sinners by nature and by choice and tend to worship and serve created things more than you, our creator. We recognize that as a tendency within our own hearts. So we pray through the study of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit that you would continue to set us free from our misplaced identities by making you, help us to make you the love of our lives so that we could live more and more lives that are unshakable, regardless of what we may face, that they would be unshakable because our identity is centered on you and in you and from you. And we pray these things for your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful and holy name. And everyone said, Amen. amen. So let's take a look at this. Let me read through the text. And I won't comment on it. We'll just read through it, and then we'll kind of work through the notes here. So beginning in chapter 2, The Gospel of Luke, verse 39, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, speaking of Joseph and Mary, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew, this is Jesus, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, They went up according to the custom, to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all of these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And then Luke continues on in chapter 3 talking about John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. We're going to study that next week. But I wanted us to continue on with the story of Jesus in verses 21 through 23 of chapter 3. Let me continue reading. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. This is the word of the Lord to us this weekend. So take a look at your notes. So the first thing we're going to look at, the unshakable identity of the 12-year-old Jesus, and that was found as we read there in Luke chapter 12, uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 52. And let me give you a little background here. I I find the story a bit humorous. How do you lose Jesus, okay? They lost Jesus. And and so in this biblical culture, when a boy turned 13, it was expected of him to assume 
adult responsibilities. Age 13, unlike our culture, <laughs> when some boys never grow up, when we're talking 13 years old, they would assume adult responsibilities. And in fact, many of you men who are currently going through our Stepping Up program will see certainly uh, part of what you're being taught right here in this story. It's really consistent with our men's Stepping Up program. So at age 13, they were expected to assume adult responsibilities. And so the year that he was 12, he entered into an intensive time of training and his father would apprentice him in his calling as an adult, uh, vocationally, relationally, and spiritually. Now, what's interesting about this story is that families would travel annually to Jerusalem to the Passover feast, and, and so this would be the year that Jesus would be spending a lot of time with Joseph as he explained the meaning of, of the Passover, among other things, in his life. When the feast ended and they were returning home, this is what I find somewhat humorous and interesting is that they traveled a day's journey before they realized Jesus wasn't with them. Now, that wouldn't be surprising because, it wouldn't be unusual because entire villages would travel together. The men would walk with the men, the women would walk with the women, and the children would walk with the, the children. And so maybe, you know, Joseph was assuming that, that Mary knew where Jesus was, and maybe Mary was assuming that, uh, that Joseph knew where Jesus was. And so, and so uh, which by the way, it's interesting. I've been in the church my whole life, and uh, in my long church history, I have seen large families accidentally leave a child at church, okay? I've actually seen that. How many have ever seen that before where they actually, okay, they accidentally leave a child and so one parent assumes the other one, and maybe especially if they come in separate cars, I've seen that happen, but, uh, but and that's accidentally. I'm thinking that there are a lot of people that would like to on purpose leave their child at church. <laughs> Anybody kind of thinking along those lines sometimes? I'm just gonna leave him here and maybe you can fix him or take care of him, okay? And so that was not what was happening. They just uh, accidentally left him. They didn't know that. And so the unshakable identity of the 12-year-old Jesus, here, let me give you some fill in the blanks here. Here's the first thing that I think we can draw from this particular text. Identity development must begin early. Identity development must begin early. Verse 40, it says, and the child grew and became strong. This is talking about Jesus, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. I find that really interesting as I was thinking about that. So Jesus, at a very young age, was filled with wisdom. Uh, we know this based on when you look at Scripture, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs uh, 9.10. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so what is this fear of the Lord? So it says that he was filled with this wisdom, which is the fear of the Lord. That's one aspect of, of of wisdom, and uh, the fear of the Lord is a life-transforming, joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of, of who God is and what he's done for us that ruins us for anything else. This is what Jesus was growing in and understanding. Wisdom is also, also seeing and responding to life from God's perspective, based on God's word. But it also says here that he had the favor of God was upon him, which is the grace of God. It tells us in Proverbs 22, 6, it says, train up a child in the way that he, is, he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I grew up from a, a background that actually would preach that almost as if it was a promise. But I need, to, I need to tell you that that's not a promise, it's a probability. You guys know the difference between a promise and a probability? In other words, a promise would be a guarantee. Probability would be if you do this, you have a high likelihood that they will continue on that path. And so what I'm saying is that there's no promises in the Bible that your kids will turn out the way you want them to turn out because you do all the right things. Because I've seen kids come from really, really good backgrounds still go south because you can't violate the free moral agency of man. They still have a choice. They're not robots. And, and so they can still take all that you have taught them and still go south. That's all I'm saying. And so what that should do when I say that is that it should freak you out and put you on your knees and pray like crazy for your kids that they would begin to develop at a very young age the fear of the Lord, that they would have this wisdom and begin to see life more and more from God's perspective and understand who God is. And, uh, and so, so you, you do the best you can with God's help. It's a supernatural uh, responsibility. And we are stewards. 
as parents. God has given us this stewardship. They are his kids ultimately, and we have them for a season, but we need to train them in a manner that's consistent with, with God's word. Now, let me just give you some suggestions of what that might look like. Nancy and I, we took this very seriously. We took it too seriously at times, and too much of our identity was attached to our kids and how they responded to life. We'll talk a little bit about that. But uh, let me just say that you need to be praying with your, with your kids regularly. Pray with them. Pray for them. Pray like crazy for them, but pray with them. Let them hear mom and dad pour out their heart to God in their behalf and for the family. You need to pray with them. You, you need to have family devotions with them. I know that's hard, especially as they get into the teenage years, but uh, and when they're young, it's hard. They're very distracted. Our family devotions at times would only last maybe 10, 15 minutes because that's all the kids could, could handle at the time. We have family devotions. You need to set a time where everybody's together. It could be at the dinner table when you're all eating together. Whatever, you need to have family devotions. You also need to help your kids to start memorizing Scripture at a very young age. They need to memorize uh, text of Scripture. And what we would do around our house is that we'd have our kids memorize Scripture, and we, we, we said, hey, we're going to reward you when you do that. In fact, when you all get this verse memorized, we're going to go to Dairy Queen. Woo! So get that verse memorized so Dad can take you to Dairy Queen. And so we would do that, and our, my kids, even to this day, will tell me that there are certain verses that will come to mind that they memorized at a young age that, that helps them in their time of need. So you need to be doing that. But here, let me press on you just a little bit more here with this. Also, you need, you need to be not just praying with them, having family devotions, memorizing scriptures, but you need to bring them to church faithfully. Um, you need to be here more than you're not here. And this needs to be a priority. And they need to see that, that it's a priority for you in, in your life. So in fact, let me add to that. Bring them to church faithfully and show your child with your actions and attitude that church participation is more important than their extracurricular activities. In our culture today, extracurricular activities take a higher priority than church involvement. I've seen it time and time again. And then I see a lot of kids that are unprepared for adulthood and they're sent out into, in the college years and they crash. They crash and burn. Some of them crash and burn before that. Some of them are already crashing and burning because parents aren't, aren't aware of that. They're not in touch with where their kids are. And so keep that in mind. Let me give you a couple tools just for little kids and as they grow up, just a couple tools I'll throw out there at you. The Jesus Storybook Bible. I wish we would have had that one with our kids, but we had different other translations and simpler translations, kids' versions, but the, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Here's another one. Thoughts That Make Your Heart Sing by Sally Lloyd-Jones. Those are two really good books. Nancy and I would use the growing notes also. The church that we were going to, we'd take good notes, and then her and I would dialogue about that, what we're learning, what God's speaking to us, then we would break it down for our kids. You can do the same thing. That's why we give you those notes. It doesn't have to be all that I'm telling you, but you could take a, a topic like this weekend, we're talking about identity, and, and help your kids at a very young age learn that their identity's in Christ. Not what their school teacher says, not what their friends say about them, it's what Jesus says about you. And you can start walking them through that. That's critical, that's important. That's what we need to be doing with our kids. Identity development must begin early. Here's the next one. As a parent, if your identity isn't in Christ, you will look for it in your children. Oh my goodness. As a parent, if your identity isn't in Christ, you will look for it in your children. Verse 48, and when his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, now, I want to cut Mary Jesus' mom, some slack here a little bit, just a tad, but it seems like she's, uh, she's putting a little bit of a guilt trip on him. Did you guys see that in the, in the story when you read through that? Okay, so let me read what she says here. She says, son, why have you treated us so? That's kind of, in other words, how could you treat us like this? That's called a guilt trip. Why would you do this to us? And then, and then she goes on, she kind of adds... Uh, Adds Joseph to the, to the piling on here a little bit by saying, um, behold, like think about this. Get this in your thick skull, son. 
Kind of like, that's, what, that's kind of what that means. Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And that was kind of appropriate. You, that stressed us out. But what, what should have happened actually is that she should have, first of all, kind of dialogued with him and said, hey, dude, where have you been? What's going on here? Man, what happened? Did you get kidnapped? Did you get lost? She should have tried to figure out. She's assuming a lot here. As if like, you did this to us. Like, how oh, dare you? It's like, wait, 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 you don't know that. You don't know what's going on. You need to ask, you need to inquire. This is one thing that I wish I would have done more of, is dialogue with my kids a little bit more. Because when my kids would come up with these crazy ideas, like, hey, there's nothing wrong with that music, Dad. We can listen to that music, or we can go to that movie, Eddie the Slasher kind of movies, you know, like that. I freaked out. I'd go through, what do you mean there's nothing wrong with that movie? There's everything wrong with that movie. Get over here. <laughs> that was my response. It's kind of like, get over here. I'll show you. I mean, it was a, Rather than say, what? I'm shocked that you would say that. Why would you think that that's a good movie? Do you know what that movie's about? Tell me. What's going on? So, so you enter into more of a dialogue. But what that showed to me in my response to my kids is that my identity was too much attached to their response and how they were living out their life. And, and so my, I was getting too much of my identity in them. And, and in fact, I'm so, so this explains why our children have such a profound ability to anger us, hurt us, rob us of sleep. Our children can make us feel very proud of them and also deeply embarrassed. Your kids can say things like, oh my goodness. And we, almost, we take it very personally. It explains why you take the success or failure of your children so personally. So your parenting will be shaped by where you look for your identity. Your response to your little midget demons will reveal that. So if you see your emotional response just pegging out, could it be that you have overly attached your identity to, to who they are and their well-being and you're forgetting that you're just a steward? You're going to do the best that you can with what God uh, has given you. And so, so you're, just, you're just trying to, uh, trying to work through that. And uh, let me just say a little bit about uh, with, with my kids. Um, we understood that, and we tried to do the best we could, but the day when they finally uh, left the house, it was one of those days of kind of like, okay, that's the finish line, they're, they're on you, God. <laughs> they're all yours now. We were stewards, we did the best we could, and, uh, and so there was this combination of kind of relief, they're on you, God, now, and at the same time, there was a major depression, wondering, did we do everything we needed to do for them? And so there's that struggle. And I share that only with you because those are all normal responses as you kind of work through all of this by God's grace. And you gotta constantly look to make sure, am I overly attaching my sense of identity to, to them and their well-being? Because it will really mess up your parenting. You'll tend to be either overly controlling or overly compliant. You'll tend to go to one of those two extremes rather than to find a fine line of balance where you're speaking the truth in love and maintaining that good balance. In fact, our relationship with God transcends all other relationships. That's the next fill in the blank on your notes. And you know, we get this from Jesus. Jesus does a phenomenal job here. He's 12 years old. So in verse 48, behold, your father and I have been searching for you in other words, Mary is saying, of all the years, this is the year your father is to apprentice you and you are to be with your father. That's, what, that's in essence is what she's saying. And Jesus responds, Jesus says, Mom, I am. I am with my father. That's what he says. Verse 49, and he said to them, it's pretty profound what Luke is writing here, if, if you can really begin to understand this. Jesus said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house doing what my father wants me to do? I'm learning from my father. And uh, this, is, this language, my father's house, is very unusual in this Jewish culture. They would talk about our father uh, seldom, occasional. But for a person to say, my father... Highly unusual, but this is very profound also in what Jesus is saying. He's, he's revealing this very personal and intimate relationship with God, which says this is where our identity needs to be. 
It needs to be centered on God and our relationship with him. And then that creates this healthiness so that then we can respond to marriage and parenting and all these other things more appropriately. And uh, here's the next point on your notes. The goal of parenting isn't behavioral modification but heart transformation. And there were times, certainly, I just wanted to say, just do what I tell you to do. And there's appropriate times to say that. But at some point, you've got to go below the, the behavior and start trying to explore their heart a bit and say, hey, what in the world is going on? And trying to uncover. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 gives us some good counsel as it relates to that. But always remember that you are raising a little worshiper. We are all worshipers. And here's the next point on your notes. Whatever rules your child's heart will control his behavior. Whatever rules your child's heart will control his behavior. Same with you too, by the way. Not just our kids, but also us. Look at verses 51 and 52. This is really fascinating uh, when you look at the life of Jesus here, 12-year-old Jesus. Verses 51 and 52. And he went down with him. So this is after, so Jesus responds to a mom who's kind of freaking out a little bit, kind of throws a little heavy guilt on him. He doesn't take the bait. And he responds, says, hey, didn't you know I need to be at my father's house doing what he wants me to do? So he's very cool, calm, and collected, very assertive, great deal of confidence. That's what it does when you center your life on God. And yet, notice what it says from that point on. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive, key word, submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all of these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I mean, there's this amazing confidence and humility in Jesus. And you're going to see it throughout his life. Majesty and meekness. And, and so, so when you think about uh, heart transformation, this is what we're looking for in our children, but of course we need to exemplify this, we need to show this. And by the way, our kids, uh, with our kids, more things are taught than caught. Does that make sense from our kids? So all I'm saying is have a real relationship with Jesus. If you walk with him, if you know him, if you experience him, then the overflow of that, your kids are gonna catch that. They're gonna see that. They're gonna want what you have if, if you are truly enjoying that richness in Jesus. They might not see it now, but I'll guarantee you, maybe later on, even if they go south, they're gonna look back and go, yeah, there's no doubt about it. Mom, dad had a legit relationship with, with the Savior. And that's what you wanna do is you wanna show that more than anything in your life, but there needs to be in you that, that confidence. So confidence would be truth, and yet that humility would be that more of that love and grace. But you wanna see that in your children too. So if you see with your kids, you know, some, some of our kids are, are too passive, and, and they kinda cower too much. Others of our kids are too towering, too arrogant. So there is this combination, that, and, that's, and I, I wish we could spend more time on that, but we're not. That would be a study in itself. To look at this combination working in their, in their heart of they have courage and yet humility within that courage, and we need to have the same thing. You've got confidence and yet humility, and you see that in Jesus' life. Okay, that's, that's the 12-year-old Jesus, the unshakable identity of the 12-year-old Jesus. Now let's take a look at the 30-year-old Jesus the unshakable identity that he had. And in Luke uh, chapter three, verse 21 through 23, what Luke is showing us is that there was a process of Jesus' identity recognition that began early in his life and continued then 18 years later when the Father speaks from heaven at his baptism. Here's your next fill in the blank on your notes. Identity development must continue to be nurtured throughout our lives. And so you see this happening in Jesus' life also, especially if you came from a broken home. Anybody come from a perfect home here? Anybody? Show of hands. No, 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 none of us. So, okay, so you need to continue to work based on how broken your home is, is to the degree you're going to have to work on this identity development. Because I'll guarantee you that if you were raised in the normal American home, they probably made career or romance or bank account or things more important. That became uh, what your identity was based on. And so when you get out into adulthood, that, that messes you up. You begin to pursue those things as opposed to pursuing God. And then uh, they set you up uh, for failure in that. So you've got to come back 
and identify that and relocate your identity upon Christ. Verse 21, now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were open. So as I was looking at that, I was saying, okay, this is, this is packed full. First of all, he's with all these people being baptized, so he's got community. And when, then when Jesus was baptized, that's a church ordinance, baptism. And then you also see that he was praying. So that's a, that's a spiritual discipline. So Jesus is continuing to develop his identity. He's nurturing his sense of identity in the Father. It tells us in Luke 4.42 that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. And so identity development must continue to be nurtured throughout our lives. This is what you should be focused on each and every day is this identity development and where your identity lies. Here's the next one. How do we do that? By knowing our God-given identity illuminated by the Holy Spirit. So this is how we do it. And we see this in verse 22. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now, you need to know this about Jesus. Jesus was saturated with the Bible. And so these words resonated with him, and he knew that these words were found in, in Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. So this was stuff that he had already studied, and this was just resonating deep within his heart as God, through the Holy Spirit, was making it personal to him. We, this is how we grow in our identity, is not just to know this, but to experience it. And it takes the Holy Spirit to, to make it real to our heart. It's one thing to have it in our head. It's another thing to have it in our heart. And that's why you, you've got the Apostle Paul praying this for the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 1, 17 through 18. Listen to what he says. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, this is his prayer, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, intimacy with him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Wait a minute, these are Christians. Yeah, yeah, but even as Christians, sometimes we're not living in the reality of all that we have in Christ and where our identity lies. So he's asking, hey, I pray that God will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that in your intimacy with him, that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Do you have any idea what you have in him? And it requires for you to not only know it from God's word, but to have the Holy Spirit make it alive to your heart. Next point in your notes, your identity will either make you or break you in life and ministry. So verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. And what's interesting is you follow Jesus' life from this point on. Where does Jesus go almost immediately right after uh, this, uh, this baptism experience? He goes right into the wilderness and is tempted by the enemy. So he was really adequately prepared before he went into temptation. We'll be looking at that in a few weeks, this temptation. But his ability to get through the temptation was directly related to his, his identity, his identity in the, in the Father. And understanding that, that's, that's really significant. Almost immediately in, in Luke chapter four, Jesus will be tempted by Satan. And then later, look at Jesus' life, the trajectory of his life. And then later on, he's gonna face extreme pressure in life and ministry through ridicule, rejection, betrayal, denial, Extreme suffering, torture, excruciating death. So listen to me. You got to get this. Everybody wake up. Come on. You got to get this one right here. Your identity will either make you or break you. And it will make you if it's in Christ. It will break you if it's in anything else. It's inevitable. It's inevitable. Let me give you some examples of this. Let me walk you through a number of examples. So, if you center your life and identity on your spouse or partner, you will be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling. The other person's problems will be overwhelming to you. you guys tracking with me? Does that make sense? Okay, not enough of you are tracking with me. Don't make me have to come out there, okay? Okay, I know you guys, are, you guys are deep thinkers here in this service because you woke up later so your brain is more engaged than the first crowd. Is that what it is? Okay, so you're thinking through that. I mean, no, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. 
But that's, that's one. Here's another one. If you center your life and identity on your family and children, you will try to live your life through your children until they resent you or have no self of their own. At worst, you may abuse them when they displease you. That's just one aspect of what that might look like. Here's another one. If you center your life and identity on your work and career, you will be a driven workaholic and a boring, shallow person. At worst, you will lose family and friends, and if your career goes poorly, develop deep depression. In fact, let me just say this. I've seen people want to commit suicide because they lost their career. I've seen them want to do that too after being jilted by a lover. Very common. Put all their sense of identity in this person or in this job or in this bank account, any number of things. I had a guy in the first service come up to me and said that that's exactly what happened to his cousin at a very young age. And it devastated, it rocked our world, but he had been jilted by a, a girlfriend and went and killed himself. So that's very common, very common. Here, let me give you a few more. If you center your life and identity on money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry or jealousy about money. You'll be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow up your life. Here's another one. If you center your life and identity on pleasure, gratification, and comfort, you will find yourself getting addicted to something. You will become chained to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life. Have I pretty much covered everybody here? Okay. If not, let me, I got, I got three more, okay? We'll just make sure we got everybody covered here. Here's another one. If you center your life and identity on relationships and approval, you will be constantly overly hurt by criticism and thus always losing friends. You will fear confronting others and therefore will be a useless friend. So you're going to have a hard time hearing truth and also speaking truth because, you, my goodness, you put too much emphasis on what they say about you and what they think about you and having their approval. That's because you're not anchored in, in your identity in Christ. If you center your life and identity on a noble cause, well, this is very common in our culture today. Think politics as I read this. Okay. If you center your life and identity on a noble cause, you will divide the world into good and bad and demonize your opponents. Isn't that what you see with the, the extreme, with the right and the left and the Democrats and the Republicans? There's a lot of demonizing and deifying. Yeah. And ironically, you will be controlled by your enemies. Without them, you have no purpose. These are all, I know, they're, they're pretty heavy-duty thoughts. You have to think through these. Here's the last one. If you center your life and identity on religion and morality, you will, if you are living up to your moral standard, be proud, self-righteous, and cruel. If you don't live up to your standards, your guilt will be utterly devastating. So as I was thinking about this, I wrote a couple things on the back here. Here's the first thing. If you, if you look to created things, listen to me, if you look to created things to give to you the, the meaning, the happiness, the hope that only God can give to you, inevitably those things will control you. They'll control your life, and in the end, they will break your heart called misplaced identity. So this is what you have to do is you follow the pathway of your inordinate fears back into your heart and you'll discover the things you love more than God. Now, so here's the solution to this is now, so we've looked at the unshakable identity of the 12-year-old Jesus, unshakable identity of the 30-year-old Jesus, and now let's look at the unshakable reality or the identity of the followers of Jesus. Now, what was Jesus' ministry all about? This is what Jesus' ministry was from this point on. He spends the rest of his life, as documented in the book of Luke, calling men and women into a father-child intimate family relationship with God through himself. It's what the Bible's all about. So take a look at this. This is what I want us to focus on. Just this one verse of, of verse 22, Luke 3, 22. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Here's the next fill in the blank on your notes. Your identity won't be healed until these words are ringing in your soul. So if you want healing to your identity, these words right here, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Those should be ringing in your soul. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that's what you want more than anything is to have those ringing in your soul. 
and, and they need to, and you need to know in your heart, oh, that's how my father, my daddy, my creator feels about me, what he thinks about me. He's gonna do great things in my life. There should be this like, oh, I hear those words. You, when you get a sense of that, like this is from God, he's saying that to me, and it has to be personalized. It has to, you have to know that he's speaking to you, those words ringing in your soul. When we, by grace, put our faith in Christ, we are unified with him, and what is true of Jesus is true of us. Paul uses this phrase, these two phrases over and over again in his writings. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, writes a lot, gives a lot of instruction on the gospel, and he says, in Christ, you are in Christ, and Christ is in you. How many are familiar with those terms? Yeah. You're in Christ. Those are identity terms. He's constantly bringing us back to our identity. Wait a minute, you're in Christ, and Christ is in you. You're in Christ, Christ is in you. Identity terms, don't you understand? Relocate your identity in him. And I'm so thankful, what that means is that, that Jesus' righteousness is attributed to my account. He lived the life I should have lived, died the death I should have died, and his right behavior, his righteousness is given to me, and I stand before God completely righteous. And so these words that were spoken to Jesus are my words. They're spoken to me. You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In fact, you need to write those down. Many of you need to write those down and carry those with you and ask for the Holy Spirit to make those real to your heart. It will be life transforming. It'll change your life. There's, if you begin to hear that ringing in your soul as, as a Christian, um, and you, you need to not just know that just simply know that. You need to experience that deep in your heart. It will change everything. Now, here's, here's what that might look like here as you begin to work out the implications of this. Three things this identity in Christ means. Unparalleled status, that's the first. You are my son. You are my son. All believers are treated as firstborn sons is really what he's saying here. Let me ask you this. What's the highest office here in the United States? Highest office? President of the United States. How many watched the inauguration? 45th president. Pretty, pretty fascinating to watch that whole parade and all the pomp and circumstance and all that goes along with that. Pretty amazing, pretty amazing. That's quite a status, wouldn't you say? All the secret service and all that goes on to that and how much money it's gonna cost now for the protection and all that. Unbelievable status, uh, position, office, and that doesn't even come close to this unparalleled status that we have as his sons. Did you know that? And that's, that's kind of what you need to be thinking. It's pretty lofty, but that's really the, the point. What's the highest status in NFL football? Highest status? Highest status for a team? Super Bowl. Super Bowl, okay. Am I right? Okay, you guys were yelling a lot. Good answers, good answers. Okay, I'll give you that. I'll give you some credit. But no, Super Bowl. How about MVP. How about MVP? Say, let me ask you guys, so uh, who's going to win the games? I've got the Packers and the Falcons. Who's going to win between those two? Packers. Packers. How many Packer fans? Packer fans? Falcon fans? Not very many of you. You better watch your back on the way out of here. Okay? Because there's a lot of Packer fans in the house. How about between the Steelers and the Patriots? Oh, I hear a mix. Okay. Let's have all of the Steeler fans go out this door. And all of the Patriot fans will go out this door. The back door. Okay, back door. Oh. 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 I don't know if you guys watched that game with Aaron Rodgers. And this, the guy, was, guy was, is this unbelievable quarterback who put on display the glory of God through his athleticism and the passes that he was making. And some have said that he was a Christian. I, I'm not sure if he is or not. But I'll tell you this. He's got one Super Bowl ring. Or let's take Tom Brady. He's got, hey, settle down. He's got how many Super Bowl rings? Four. Four Super Bowl rings. If either one of those were believers and they understood what they had in Christ, they would say those four Super Bowl rings or that one Super Bowl ring or winning MVP or winning a Super Bowl is nothing compared to having that. Do you understand that? That sounds really lofty, but it goes through the roof compared to, to that. That's, that's all I'm saying. Those, those, are, big, those are a big deal. <laughs> you know, kind of, somewhat. In light of eternity, in light of life, in light of having our identity centered in God, are you, are you kidding me? That, that's the point here. 
unparalleled status. Listen to Romans 8, 15 through 17. For you did not, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. I mean, these verses speak of both, both the status gives us both access to God and inheritance from God. Let me ask you another question. What kind of access and inheritance do Donald Trump's kids have compared to the rest of us, to him? To him. Do you, think they could, do you think I can call Donald Trump anytime I want to and get in? How about his inheritance? Do I get any of that? No. Of course not. But th- what they have is, is unparalleled status of both access to dad and inheritance from dad. See, here, here's the point. Okay, don't, don't miss the point in, in all of this. If you understand the unparalleled status, the unparalleled status that you have as a child of God, you would have boldness and confidence every day and never walk in fear of anyone or anything because your dad owns the universe. Amen. Your dad owns the universe. You wouldn't be afraid. So when you have fear, you gotta come back and realize, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm not living in the reality of this unparalleled status that I have. I'm his son. I'm his child. That's, that's important. That's important. And the more you do that, the less you're gonna be controlled by people's expectations or people's criticisms or be desperate for people's approval. You're not gonna have that. You have his. You have his approval. You have him. You have access and inheritance. Next one is uncompromised security. Uncompromised security. Beloved son. Parent love is really interesting. It's peculiar when you really think of parent love in comparison to friend or romantic love. If friend or romantic love starts acting up, you, you withdraw and establish better boundaries. But with parent love, if your child starts acting up, what do you do? You press in and you give more attention and affection to them. That's the idea here. Beloved, beloved son, he's trying to make a distinction. This is a, this is a different kind of love. I love the quote that says this, and those that, that have had kids, that have kids or grandkids, is that once you start having children... For the rest of your life, you'll only be as happy as your least happy child. Do you guys track with that? So you're only going to be, because you, you put so much of your heart into your kids. My goodness. The sleepless nights, we worry over our kids. We want the best for them, but I can't help but think that sometimes that goes over into the category of being, we're misplacing our identity a bit. We need to put our trust in God and not get so stressed out. But, but what does that tell us more than anything? Why are we so concerned with the well-being of our kids? We're image bearers of a father in heaven who's that, that concerned over you and I. All that is doing, you know your heart you have for your kids? Man, you, want, you would give your life for your child even more so does your father in heaven. You need, when you start experiencing that, you need to take it right back to the father and say, wow, that's how you feel about me, God. I'm your beloved son. You love me that much? Yeah. That was, that's why it's overwhelming. It's, it's overwhelming when I think about my kids, my love for them. I got grandkids now. I get a second chance at trying to parent, okay? I get to try to do it right this time, okay? Spoil them like crazy and then send them back home to them, let them figure it out. But I, I don't do that. I actually try to do a better job at the parenting thing. I, I try, okay? But... Uh, but that's just, that's that uncompromised security, beloved son. Listen to me. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more, and there's nothing that you have done that would make him love you less. He is ravished and smitten with you. He's ravished and smitten with you, especially, especially, those, especially those of us whom no one else notices, even more so. If you feel all alone, you need to know that you have a daddy in heaven who loves you and is ravished by you and is smitten by you. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That needs to be ringing in your soul. Listen to me, that'll change everything about your life. Listen to what, 
This analogy in the Old Testament, Isaiah 49, 15 through 16, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. I mean, there's, there's not a more unshakable foundation for your life than, than his love for you. Our security is based on his unshakable love for us, not ours for him. So if you're feeling shaken, you gotta look back at his love for you. What did he do for you? He sent his son. He sent his son. You gotta look at uh, verses like Romans 8, 31 and 32. He did not spare his own son for us. That's how much he loves us. And, uh, and the more you live in the reality of this, the, the less you will need and the more you will love. And here's the last one, un- unbelievable satisfaction. With you, I'm well pleased. With you, I find great delight. How much does the Father love the Son, Jesus? That's how much he loves you. How much does the Father delight in the Son, Jesus? That's how much he delights in you. That's the point of that. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Psalm 1611 says, in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures evermore. I'm almost finished here. And everybody look up here. Everybody look up here. You got to get this. This is the last point. Well, I've actually got one more point after this. Okay. Sorry. But here's a, here's a big point. This is a big point. That there is no created thing. There is no created thing. There is no created thing on this earth that can give you the satisfaction that only the creator can give you. There's no child, no parenting, no, no marriage, no relationship, no bank account, no amount of money can give to you what only the creator can give you. There is a satisfaction that's found in him that is amazing, that's out of this world. Listen to what A.W. Tozer says, an infinite God can give all of himself to each of his children. An infinite God can give all of himself to each of his children. St. Augustine said, God loves each of us as if there's only one of us. So why are we an object of his amazing love? Here's the last point. Because Jesus prayed, my God, my God, why, why have you forsaken me? Because he did that, we cry with confidence, Abba, Father, my Daddy. It goes back to the verse that we meditated on earlier, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So next week we're going to talk about uh, the difference between having a kind of a general belief in God and truly trusting God. The difference between having a said faith and a real faith. Let's pray. So Father, thank you. Thank you for this. uh, Oh, wow. This text is so needed. We we need you. We need to hear those words ringing in our hearts that we are your beloved sons and daughters and children in whom you are greatly pleased. So God, may we know this unparalleled status, this uncompromised security, and this unbelievable satisfaction deep in our hearts and souls, and may it transform every part of our lives. And may we realize uh, how indispensable and costly it is because it came to us through the sacrificial love of your son. We celebrate that this weekend and this morning. And God, may you walk with us as our lives are transformed from the inside out for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Love you guys.